let you all go ahead and have a seat this morning. So go ahead and have a seat, and we're going to get started this morning. It's so good. We've got a lot to share. It's good to be connected and love the fact that this is a delight for so many of you to connect with one another. Um, I'm Scott, as uh, Ryan mentioned, one of the pastors here at the Vine. And we're in the middle of a short series. We typically, at the beginning of every new year, we jump into a series that helps us to explore the rhythms of grace, what it, what it means on a daily basis to be a disciple of Christ, to, to grow in Him as we devote ourselves. We talked last week about the importance of God's Word. And then this week, we're going to be looking at prayer. And then next week, the, this rhythm of generosity, what it means to worship the Lord through our generosity. Now, as Providence would have it, a few weeks ago, a good friend shared with me a link to a sermon by Dr. Tim Keller on prayer. And that sermon um, crystallized for me what it is that I feel like God has been teaching me over the last few years when it comes to the posture of prayer and what it means to be a praying Christian. And so I'm going to be borrowing quite a bit from the the content of that sermon to share it with you this morning as we focus in on Matthew 6, verses 7 through 13. So you can go ahead and turn there. And what we're going to be exploring today is the basis by which we pray. So again, Matthew 6, verses 7 through 13, the basis of prayer. Heather, come on up, and she's going to lead us in the reading of God's Word this morning. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, I confess that this morning I come into this service feeling weak and frail in so many ways. It's interesting how life continues and as challenges come, you remind us that we are weak, that we really desperately do need you. And so I pray this morning, recognizing my condition isn't unique, Lord, that we all enter this place with various stories and various challenges and um, various joys as well as sorrows. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to meet you not based on those conditions, but based on who you are. Lord, we thank you that your word, that it doesn't return void. Lord, we thank you that your word is illuminated to our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, that despite our inadequacies, Lord, despite the distractions and and in spite of the, the various ways in which, Lord, we struggle at times to have a soft heart to what it is that you want to tell us. We pray, God, that you'd be actively challenging us today, actively molding us today, opening our hearts and our minds to see and to understand you and understand the role of prayer in our lives 
and the way in which we pray in a whole new way today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm always surprised uh, by having conversations with people who I don't perceive as religious or I know are from a very different religious background who refer to the fact that they pray. Um, I also find it interesting that you can be watching a secular news station and when the anchor is interviewing somebody who's come through something very difficult, they'll often end end that interview saying, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. And I think the reality is that no matter our background, uh, no matter our religious framework, prayer is a common thread in the lives of many people. And so it's with that understanding that that shared experience that we all have that we're going to answer the question this morning, what separates Christian prayer from the prayer of others? And what we need to see in verses 7 and 8 as we dig into this text is that Jesus shows us two ways to pray. There is praying like the Gentiles and praying the Christian way. So look again at verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, other translations of the Bible use a different word than Gentile. They use the word pagan. And I personally think pagan has a little bit more of a translation that we, that we get in a contemporary audience. But whatever word it is that you use, it's important to understand that a pagan or a Gentile, it doesn't refer to someone who's irreligious. Rather, it's talking about those who pray outside the Christian understanding of prayer. So, when the religious pagan prays, they pray using empty phrases, as though God will hear them because of their many words. But how it is, that, is it that we as Christians are to pray? Well, from verse 8, we see that we're to pray as children who trust their loving Father. And Jesus emphasizes this again in verse 9, as he begins the prayer saying, Our Father in heaven. So the simple focus on the sermon today is going to be this. The basis of our prayer as Christians is what sets us apart from other people who pray. On one side, the basis of prayer are empty words. On the other side is our relationship with God as our Father. Now the pagans that Jesus is referring to, uh, they may go to church They may be there every week. They may pray even hours a day. But what Jesus is helping us to understand is that prayer is not about the content we bring to God, but it's about our approach to God. You see, there are many who pray our Father, but don't go to him as Father. Pagans think that they're being heard for one reason, and Christians think they're being heard for another. So what's the true basis for prayer? Well, in verse 7, 8, Jesus says there's two ways to go to God. Now, as we develop this idea, I want to take some time to share some illustrations with you. Okay, so the first one is I want you to imagine that you're down on State Street on a busy day. 
Now, when, you, uh, when you're down there walking around and there's people, a lot of strangers, people you don't know, there are a few reasons that it's okay to go up and talk to one of those strangers, uh, one of which is to ask for directions. Now, what basis is it by which you can do that? Well, there's a couple reasons. Probably one is that we're all human and we all know what it's like to be lost. So, uh, it's very rare that you would go and do that and someone would get upset with you. Most people are genuinely happy to help a person when they're lost. But what most of us also understand is that there's a line that we can't cross. Right? Imagine you're on State Street again and it's a day like today and you go up to that same stranger and say, hey, will you give me your coat? How would they respond to that? Well, chances are they would look at you funny Maybe they'd get upset with you. Maybe they'd walk away angry. And why is that? Well, it's because a deeper interaction like that, it requires a deeper basis for the relationship. And this is kind of the understanding of what it is Jesus is starting to take us toward as we think about prayer. Now, Tim Keller framed it this way. There are two basic ways to go to God. You can either go on a business or a family relationship. In a business relationship, one goes to another person and says that I have something for you. In a family relationship, it's not about what I can do for you, but who I am to you. So business is based on performance, family is based on commitment. So let's illustrate this a bit more deeply. Okay, there are two different ways in which someone can live in someone's house. You're either a renter or you're a family member. If you're a renter, then the owner is likely your landlord. As long as you pay the rent and you respect the rules, it's going to be fine. And the same expectation is there for the landlord, by the way. If you pay the rent and follow the rules, then when something breaks in your apartment, in your room, you can call that landlord and you expect that they will come and fix that promptly. So the basis of the relationship is this exchange of goods and services. Now, when Carrie and I, we were newly married, we uh, wanted to save up for a house, and so What we did is we took this job where we would live in an apartment complex and manage 48 apartments. And I don't know if anybody's ever done something like that, but it felt like a lot more responsibility than just a part-time job. It was pretty heavy. And one of the things that we learned pretty quickly is that you couldn't become good friends with the tenants. And the reason is because before long, we recognized on a monthly basis there would be different tenants who would be late on their rent. And so... I would have to put the screws in on them. And there were, there were times where we even had to evict people. And, and the reality is, it's pretty hard, I learned, to get tough on someone who you consider a friend. And this is because a business relationship is conditional, right? You fulfill your terms of the agreement, and I'll fulfill mine. But the more you move from business towards family, the more the relationship goes from being conditional to unconditional. This, again, is because a business relationship, it's based on what you bring, but a family relationship is based on 
who you are. So let's bring this idea back to living in someone's home. If you live in your parents' home, you're not a renter, but you're a child. In a business relationship, again, if you perform, you're accepted. But in a family relationship, the fact that you're accepted means you perform. This is why parents often say to their kids, you need to help out around the house because that's what it means to be part of this family. This is because performance flows from the family relationship. So bringing this back to the basis of prayer, let's go back to verses 7 and tack on verse 9. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. So the essence of what Jesus is saying here is that you can either approach God on a business or a family basis. You can either, verse 7, base your work on your performance, right? Base your, your works and your prayers on your many words. Or, verse 8 and 9, you can base your relationship on family. The idea that you are his child And he is your father. So you either approach, again, on a business or a family relationship. Now, in a moment, we're going to get really practical, and we're going to tease out this idea looking at verses 9 through 11. But before we do that, I want to get really practical with you and help you think through this in your own life just a little bit. If you pray like a pagan, there are two things that happen when your prayers aren't answered. Quite likely, you either become cold or you become anxious in your relationship with God. Now, if you don't think this is you, I want to help you remember, okay? Remember a time in your life where you were going through disappointment or suffering. And you prayed to God and asked him to deliver you in a certain way. But for whatever reason, God either didn't answer that prayer Or he answered the prayer in a way you didn't expect, you didn't desire. And your response to that experience left you feeling either cold and distant or anxious and discouraged in your relationship with God. In either case, it reveals that you were praying like a pagan. You see, if God doesn't answer your prayer and you respond with coldness, it's because you're thinking this. Hey, God, I've been paying my rent to you. I've been going to church. I'm a good person. So I deserve the answer I want from you. Or maybe your response to God not answering your prayer is anxiety. In that case, you're probably thinking, God, I must not have been keeping up my end of the deal. So so you're not answering. It's this punishment for me because I just, I haven't been a good enough Christian. So all I deserve is your wrath. And what we need to see is that either response proves, it, it proves to us that we're looking at our relationship with God either as a, as a renter and not as a child. Because in either case, you believe at a fundamental level 
that your relationship with God is a business relationship. You see, a religious person says, be my landlord. I'll do my part and you do yours. But a Christian says, you're my father. And I'm not worthy of your favor. Jesus, he lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. And on the basis of that, on the basis of him, be my father. So is your prayer life cold or anxious? Do you feel entitled as though God owes you something? Do you feel discouraged as though you're unworthy of his love? Or is your prayer life warm and loving? Is your prayer life a safe place that you go to in order to rest in your Father? Is your prayer life the most intimate moments of your week where you enjoy this close and loving relationship? Is your prayer life as a renter or as his beloved child? What Jesus wants us to understand is that to pray as a Christian is to pray as one who has been adopted, as one who's part of his family, as one who is his child. Now, John 1.12 refers to those who have received a relationship with God on the basis of Jesus Christ's performance. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This means that when you become a Christian, you are adopted as God's child. And, and the fact that that adoption, it's, it's not a result of your efforts, but it's a result of the act of a loving parent. So our adoption, it's not based on our behavior. When you adopt a child who later misbehaves, you don't send that child away. Right? Why is that? Because when you adopt a child, you're saying, I am committing all my love and all my acceptance to you as though you're my own biological child. I'm going to read for you three of my favorite, some of my favorite verses in the Bible that capture the essence of what it is that God does for us as he adopts us as his child. And I want to encourage you to just listen to these words and let, them, let the truth, truths of these words wash over you now. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. And what we see in these verses that's stated so beautifully is that through Christ, 
we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. That when we're adopted, we were blessed as the beloved. In other words, in the same way as the Father loves Jesus, he loves us. When we were adopted, God said to us, I am now committed to you as my son and my daughter. And this is why Jesus doesn't start the prayer saying, our king, or our creator, or even our friend. Even though all of those things are true, you have to start prayer with our father. Because those two words change everything. So what this means is we must start our prayer with the doctrine of adoption. Jesus says that we must start with our Father because our identity as his children fuels access to the presence of God. So our Father is not a kind of prayer we pray but it's how every other prayer we pray must be prayed. If you don't approach God on the terms of being a child, it's like a man who dies cold and hungry, sleeping on a mattress filled with money. He had right beside him all the resources, all the resources he needed to have a warm home, to, to be healthy, to enjoy the wealth that is available to him, and yet he chooses to die cold and sick and alone. You see, pagans cannot pray like Christians, but Christians can fall back into the pattern again and again of praying like pagans. So how do we resist this temptation? Well, let's consider uh, the answer for a few moments. As we look at the next few verses, what we're going to see is this. We're going to see how our adoption changes the way we praise, the way we trust, and how it is that we ask through prayer. So number one, how our adoption changes the way we praise. Look at verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, which means holy, hallowed be your name. What's important to see here in verse 9 is that family prayer is the only way for us to praise God as we should. 1 John 3.1, if you read it in the New International Version, this is how it, how it goes. It says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Now, the Greek word from which the word great is translated, it's pregnant with way more meaning than the English can give it, in that it means astonishment. Uh, By this word, great, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, John is inviting us to this sense of amazement, to this sense of awe and wonder that the Father's love is so Amazing. It is so wonderful. What we need to see here is that the love that the Father has for us, it's like off the charts. 
It's, it's beyond our ability to even understand it and fully grasp the significance and the size of that love. Now, to borrow from the previous illustration, what we need to see is that if our relationship with God is like a renter to a landlord, then praise is not going to be natural for us. This is because renters, they have this expectation that the landlord meets their needs. So if, if I pay rent, then you owe me something. This kind of relationship with God, it really destroys our ability to be people of praise. But when you're a child, that isn't the case at all. See, as adopted children, Christians understand that the gift of new life in him, this this gift, it's a gift of grace. That there's nothing that we have ever done or nothing that we could ever do to earn the great love that the Father has for us. When a renter pays the rent and he gets an answer to prayer, he says, well, sure, I'm a moral good person. Of course, you answered my prayer. But when a Christian prayer is answered, we say, this is amazing. Thank you, God. You are a good and loving father. When a renter is asked if you're a Christian, they say, well, of course I am. But when you ask a Christian if they're a Christian, they say, it's amazing, but yeah. It's amazing, but it's true. If you work hard all week to get a paycheck, you don't say, behold a miracle. You say, well, I worked hard for it. Of course I got a paycheck. If there's no behold in your life, if you're not in this continuous state of wonder, and thankfulness, and gratitude, and amazement, then it means you're looking at your relationship with God as a renter and not a Christian. A Christian lives by the words of my favorite hymn, Charles Wesley hymn. It says this, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's Blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, <laughs> how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Without our Father, there is no hallowed be thy name. So how natural is it for you to praise and adore your father? Your answer shows whether you've been looking at your relationship with God as a renter or as a child. Number two, 
How our adoption changes the way we trust. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we need to see here is that our ability to pray this prayer, to trust the will of God, has everything to do with how we view him as father. In Matthew 7, 11, here's what it says. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? This lesser to greater argument, the point that it's making is this, that ultimately, like even a pagan, okay, even an evil person can give good gifts to their children. But how much more will our Heavenly Father give to us that which is good? What this means is that even when we don't understand what God does or why he does it, we see that which he gives us as good. You see, a renter expects to understand a landlord's purposes. But a child doesn't expect to always understand a parent. Right? A renter gets angry when you don't hold up your end of the deal. But a child knows that a good father will give you what you ask or will give you what you should have asked if you knew everything he knows. See, children get the fact that they're not always going to understand everything the father does. Unless you understand him as father, there won't be a spirit of praise or a heart of trust when you go to him in prayer. And this takes us to number three, how our adoption changes the way we ask. Look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now notice here how uh, Jesus is teaching us to pray. He doesn't say, uh, pray, give us our monthly bread or our weekly bread. He said, give us, gives us our daily bread. Now, if we look at Luke 18, um, Jesus expands this idea of how it is we're to bring our request to God. And he, he gives us this picture of a widow who is nagging a judge for justice. So the point he's making there is that we're not only to ask our Father for the things we need, like food or, in that case, like justice, but we're to ask him those things persistently. We're literally to look at it as though we are nagging God. We're coming to him again and again, quickly, repeatedly, for little things and big things. We're to approach him boldly and with confidence. Now, if you ever have the chance to sit down with a Muslim and talk with them about your Christian faith or to go and maybe work with our partners in North Africa who are planting churches among a Muslim people group, what they would tell you is that one of the most curious things to a Muslim is how the Christian prays. Because to a Muslim, God is too great to call Father. And yet, of course, if we look at our Bible, we see that 
God is both great and awesome, but he's also close and intimate. You see, the difference between Islam and Christianity is not that our God's not great, but that we're his children. Think of it this way. The only person who dares to wake up a king and ask for a glass of water is his child. What would be rude and obnoxious and probably even dangerous for anyone else is completely acceptable for a little child. And and that's how we're to approach our father. We're to approach him for big and small needs in life. We're to ask him frequently and with confidence, give us our daily bread. Without our Father, there's no hallowed be your name. There's no thy will be done. There's no give us our daily bread. And so, for those of you who are praying like pagans, or are pagans who think they're Christians, look at what Jesus says here. He says, don't be like the pagan who approaches God thinking that there's something in it for you. Instead, pray, our Father. Children get it that they're not going to understand everything that their parents do. If you're a renter, you won't not ask him, won't only not ask him for what you need, but you're not going to trust him either. You won't be able to say, thy will be done. Unless you understand him as father, you won't have a spirit of praise. You won't live in awe and wonder at how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as your children, we know that there is a need for some humbling this morning. That too often we come to you as though we're entitled to get what we want. Because we frame our relationship on what we do. Lord, there are others of us here who need to repent of the fact that we're so busy looking at ourselves and just feeling sorry for ourselves that we've continued to enforce this idea that there's just something that we can do to make it better. And Lord, I pray that you would awaken us in a new way, that you would invigorate our prayer as we understand and embrace more fully what it means to be your child. Lord, and I pray for the Vine Church and for every person here today that there would be a new life, a new joy 
a new enthusiasm for all of life and for what it means to fellowship with you in prayer, to rest with you in those tender moments of understanding and care and trust and asking and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name.